Open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42, and our, our outline tonight is entitled Spies from Outside of Egypt. We're going to look, just to open up here at verses 1 through 9. Genesis 42, starting in verse 1. Now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said unto his sons, Why do ye look one upon another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is corn in Egypt. Get you down thither and buy for us from thence, that we may live and not die. And Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt. But Benjamin, Joseph's brother, this is his younger brother, the other son of Rachel, Jacob sent not with his brethren, for he said, Lest peradventure mischief befall him. And the sons of Israel came to buy corn among those that came. For, sorry, my outlines are sticking. Um, and the sons of Israel came to buy corn among those that came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. And Joseph was the governor over the land. And he it was that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them, but made himself strange unto them, and spake roughly unto them. And he said unto them, Whence come ye? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew him not. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed of them, and said unto them, Ye are spies, to see the nakedness of the land ye are come. So where Isaac left us off, the, the grievous famine is starting to spill out of Egypt. It's, it's affecting all of the land. And when we say spill out of Egypt, it's not timing-wise coming into the lands later or seven years into it, but it's impacting everyone. And these first nine verses make it very clear that Canaan is close enough that they are directly impacted by it. We might read these first nine verses and think, well, uh, is it some kind of miracle by which Joseph disguises himself from his brethren? There's quite a few things to think about here. It's been 20 years since his brethren had seen him, for one. Two, they're compelled to bow down before him with their faces to the earth, the text says, so they're not looking right at him. Uh, thirdly, he's speaking a different language. He's speaking through an interpreter for them. They don't know that he can speak their language. Uh, and they, they don't hear him speak their language. They hear everything through an interpreter. Uh, no doubt the way we see artifacts of Egypt, he is nowhere near them as they've come before him and requested his aid. Uh, so it would have been pretty easy for him to, to disguise himself. And certainly uh, his nature of, of tone with them 20 years ago was very different than his, his tone here. And we'll talk here in a moment of, of the specific words that he uses when he addresses them. Scripture is pretty silent about what's happened or been happening for the last 20 years with Jacob and his other sons during this time. It's likely they've all established their own homes, have started their own families. And remember, Joseph's of the younger two, so many of the other ones were old enough to really have gotten started with all of that before he left to begin with. Uh, 20 years down the road, you end up with a six foot five giant in some of those homes, if it's anything like ours. It's... Very likely that Benjamin would have been about 23 years old. And Joseph's elder brothers, for the last, like I said, two decades, have kept the secret of what really happened to Joseph. When you take a, a lie of that nature, of that magnitude, for some of the ten that knew what happened, for some the lie becomes the truth. 
It becomes the only truth. They don't really know what happened to Joseph. And it's pretty likely that he's dead by now. Uh, he was sold into service. They know that. They took him from a dry pit. They tore his clothing and lied to his father and said that he had... Uh, well, they just lied to the father. They took the jacket to him, that coat of many colors that really reflected his uh, authority in the fields. It wasn't mystical by any means, but because it was torn, the father assumed, Jacob assumed that, they, uh, that he had perished, and the brethren went ahead and let him believe that. Jacob's continuous grieving was the last thing that we read of him, and I just want to revisit that. Genesis 37, the last few verses there, starting in verse 31. They took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of the goats and dipped one of the dipped the coat in the blood and they sent the coat of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, This have we found. Know not whether it be thy son's coat or no. And he knew it and said, It is my son's coat. An evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon, upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And did he, did he mourn for 20 years? I'm not going to say that it's impossible. There's, there's those in the room that have experienced hurt that they've carried with them for 20 years, I'm sure. But this is a stark comparison with where we left off with Joseph before last week, before Isaac taught. We saw Joseph have two children. And we're going to talk about what those names mean again in a, in a moment. But one of them was that God had made him plentiful or fruitful or blessed him uh, abundantly. And the other one was that God had allowed for him to forget. This is the exact opposite of where Jacob was when we saw him at the end of chapter 37. Now, grievous famines can sometimes happen when we're just living normal lives. And essentially, that's what his brethren, at least those ten, not Benjamin, have been doing for the last 20 years. Joseph's gone. Problem solved. Sin buried. Ask Achan about that. But sometimes when we try to lead normal lives and there's something like that under the surface, grievous famines have a tendency to dig them up. They live lives oblivious to the responsibilities before God. I really, I want to take us back mentally to that place at the end of Genesis 37. When these sons didn't even have enough mercy upon their father to tell him, we don't know that he's dead. You know, some would say that the, this, is, this idea of just not telling him the truth and allowing him to believe what he wants to or omission, it is still a sin. They could have had enough mercy on their father to at least say we don't know that he was killed and maybe even confess that blood came from us, from a goat that we killed. But for 20 years, they don't know what happened to Joseph, but for 20 years they know for sure where that blood came from and they never tell their father. What we see at the start of chapter 42 is, I guess speaking from the flesh, 20 years of process of providence. Things that the Lord had set in motion coming back around again, just like he had always intended for it too. This famine that God revealed and gave a plan and a time for to Pharaoh and interpreted, of course, and now managed by Joseph was not preceded by a warning to Jacob and his sons. 
should also note that Jacob is once again being referred to as Jacob in our text and not Israel, the new name that God had given him. It came upon them without forethought, without planning, without any notice or preparation at all. It had not impacted their wealth because Jacob was doing fine, Abraham was doing fine, Isaac was doing fine. But what good is money when your entire economy was gone? When there's nothing to purchase such as seed or bread, as we see everybody looking for at this point in time. No one was able to prosper outside of Egypt. And that's where we begin the chapter. Now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, he said unto his sons, Why do you look one upon another? Behold, I have heard that there is corn in Egypt. Get you down thither and buy for us from thence, that we may live and not die. Now, as we might imagine, delegations of every family and community began to form to make a trip down to Egypt to buy or to barter for grain. If Jacob knew in Canaan that there was grain or bread or corn in Egypt when there wasn't any anywhere else, he wasn't the only one. Remember those folks that, that were paying attention in the area of Shechem now? And they knew enough to know that Joseph's brothers had departed and gone that way? Well, they're, they're nosy enough, I'm sure, to have noticed that there's no corn there. And if Jacob's now heard it, it came through the same grapevine the neighbors would have had access to as well. So these neighboring nations and the other folks inside the area of the promised land are all going to be sending delegations to Egypt at this point. And that's important when we get to, the, to how Joseph handles this situation with Jacob and his household. It's important for us to remember this isn't the first or the last family that will come before Joseph desperately needing to eat. And it's, not, it's also not going to be the first or the last delegation of folks to come through and maybe in some type of conspiracy try to gain an upper hand on Egypt, which is the accusation Joseph lays upon his brethren that they are spies looking for an opportunity to see the nakedness of the land or a weakness in Egypt. Because not only is Egypt the only place where you can go and buy, but they're now the only place where you can go and steal. It's very interesting to consider Joseph's diplomatic methods in this chapter. Jacob would not have made the trip himself for a few reasons. We'd like to think that it was because he was living in the land God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and himself, and that he wouldn't uh, want to leave. But we've seen enough of Jacob to know that probably wasn't it. His decision to stay at this time was likely due to his age, likely due to the wealth he did have there, and the fear of the nations around him. Remember at the Shechemite massacre, he turned to his own children and, and basically said, what you have done has made enemies for me. Our neighbors will now look to re revenge themselves on me and our people. Egypt also was not likely to have found it acceptable to deal with servants of Jacob's family. So it had to be his sons. It had to be his sons. And we'll get to that a little bit more in just a moment. How appropriate uh, for what was about to come. And we see it in the text. Joseph was the governor over the land. And he it was that sold to all the people of the land. Jacob has no choice. Somebody's got to go to Egypt. It can't be him, and it can't be his servants. It has to be those ten scoundrels, not Benjamin, because there's danger out there. We're going to talk about that in a minute as well. But those ten scoundrels that sold Joseph off 20 years ago, they're the only ten that can go. It's like God 
wrote it, didn't it? Benjamin, Rachel's youngest, was told by Jacob to stay, lest her adventure mischief befall him. This speaks to how much Jacob loved Rachel, how much he missed Joseph, but also to the dangers along the path of Egypt. Remember, he says at the beginning of this text uh, that this is life and death. The boys have to go so that they might live and not die. That was what he had said. And Benjamin can't go because there's peril along the path for someone who's probably in his early 20s, likely 23. Jacob states in verse 2 that, uh, as I said, is life and death. People would have been desperate by this point. No doubt uh, theft and murder would not have been something people wouldn't have considered in order to survive. Lord willing, we won't see it in our day. Uh, but we're trending in an interesting direction, aren't we? Remember, God is not just a God of love and peace, as some pulpits might proclaim. On top of that, we need to remember there was no way they could have imagined it was going to be Joseph there on the throne of power. So these boys were not only preparing for a tough trip, but also a tough crowd. They were going to have to go into Egypt. Now, we intentionally, before we talked about Joseph, went back over the involvement of the Israelites with Egypt. Do you remember that? Abraham went in there and deceived them. She's just my sister. Isaac went over there and deceived them, and he actually 100% lied. She's my sister. And now that's where they have to go, because that's where life is, lest we die. In their minds, they likely were just as concerned about the answer they're going to get out of Egypt as their journey to get there. I wonder how much of their livestock perished before they committed themselves to this journey. Did you read Jacob's, those first two verses in Jacob talking? It sounds like maybe they've already suffered some loss. And we don't read of any of the brethren passing. We don't read of any of the, the wives or the children passing. But I wonder how much of the animals they've already lost. And it's a famine, so you know they've lost the crops. They've lost the fields. And it's very likely the animal, that's what they eat too. So it's likely they've already started losing some of that as well. How many neighbors perished before the house of Jacob said it was time to do something? See, he's not just a God of love and peace and having a good time. He will have his. We've talked about this, and it is really throughout this entire book. He will have his. If they are the elect, and they are the line of the promised seed, and we know that they are, God's not going to settle for their neighbors, the smiths. It has to be Jacob. The promise was made to Abraham. There's only two options, and God's already said it isn't Esau. He said that before they came out of the womb. It has to be Jacob's lineage. Joseph recognized them even though they did not recognize him. Certainly, as we said, his appearance would have changed in 20 years. Uh, now he's got an Egyptian speech. Even if he were to speak Hebrew, it, there no doubt would be a bit of an accent. You all hear me say y'all sometimes. I'm not from the South originally. I'm from Ohio. That happens when you live places for a little bit. So likely Joseph's entire speech pattern has probably changed a little bit. His dress has changed. Uh, his habits are now Egyptian. They're foreign habits. Uh, he's been living in an Egyptian home or a prison for 20 years. To them, he's a complete stranger. And if some of them are starting to believe their own lie, he's dead. There's no way this could be Joseph. Note the ten men bowed there in verse 6. 
They bowed and faced the ground. Joseph predicted that 11 would bow, if you recall. Genesis 37, verses 9 through 11. And Joseph dreamed yet another dream and told his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Still, I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee, to the earth. And his brethren envied him. But his father observed the same. And we didn't say at that time that the math would have been off for all those brethren and his mom and his dad to bow would be more than 11. But we do see here it's 11 and there's only 10 before him. Now, if nobody else believed the dreams that Joseph had, Joseph did. And Joseph's now had 20 years of experience knowing that God does this sometimes. And I'm sometimes used to interpret these things. So how was Joseph so confident in what we're about to read that Benjamin would be retrieved? Because he believed the dream that God had given him. Eleven would bow. It didn't matter the pushback. And then when I read the text in a minute, I want you to pay attention. They continue to argue with him, and he does not listen to it at all. Baptists, it would do us some good to stop listening to people who want to argue. We don't have to fight back. This kind of speaks for itself, does it not? We don't have to get into every fight that we're invited into. This is the counsel my old man gave me. When they came before him, the text says he spoke roughly. And I want to get this uh, out there before we read the next text because he speaks again. He spoke roughly. And this word means in a stiff-necked fashion toward them. It was going to rile them up, in other words. He knew before he said the words that the way he was going to say it was going to rile them up. Remember that he was also using an interpreter. So they would have heard him speak a language they didn't understand in a connotation that seemed rough or stiff-necked, and then they would have the interpretation. And who knows how gentle the interpreter was in delivering the message that he was given. The words he says are these. Whence come ye? Ye are spies to see the nakedness of the land ye, uh, the, the land ye are come. If you're looking at the outline, Word decided to correct some things there. I apologize. Ye are spies to see the nakedness of the land ye are come into, is essentially what, what he's saying there. And that's just what he said so far. These would have been critical and harsh comments, but justified because of his position. Not because they are his brethren, but if you're one of the ten standing in the room, this is his job. This is what he's been put in charge of. He can't just give corn out to everybody who comes in and says, I want corn, please. They, they only have a certain amount, and as Isaac demonstrated in his part of the lesson, it was to sustain Egypt. That was the double tithe, to cover Egypt for seven years. Now we know what it's capable of, exceedingly and above all that we could ever hope or think or even imagine, but that was the initial purpose of the double tithe, right? So we understand that he has to be this way. We cannot forget his position and we cannot forget the state of the economy due to the famine when we consider how he's talking to them and the three days of imprisonment that we're about to see as well. Many delegations were coming into Egypt's cities now to see Joseph. Remember Pharaoh's words, they'll have to see you. Except for me, you are the most powerful person in Egypt. 
They will have to have your permission and your authority to receive grain. It would have been a reasonable concern that there might be liars using the guise of grain to gain information about Egypt as a whole for a potential conquest. Think back to earlier when we first started looking at Joseph, we talked about how the current Pharaoh was likely one that was instituted after the last siege of Egypt. That it wasn't one of Egypt's own, it was one that was placed there by those that had come into Egypt and took over. Egypt has, like America and any other nation, the ability to remember these things, because if we don't know history, we risk the chance of repeating it. Now look at verses 10 through 17 of Genesis 42. (coughs) Starting in verse 10, And they said unto him, they said unto Joseph, Nay, my lord, but to buy food are thy servants come. We are all one man's sons. We are true men. Thy servants are no spies. Before I continue, you'll notice they never say which brother's speaking. So I think it's reasonable for us to take every one of these segments and imagine a different brother saying it. They're trying to essentially fight for their lives. They're there to live or die. Remember, that was the reason they went. And we're never told who's speaking. So it's likely, given what we do know about Joseph's brethren, that they're talking over one another to try and settle down this leader who's in charge of the grain. We're true men. We're servants, not spies. We're one man's son. We're not mere servants. We all belong to the family of this man. And we are relation. And he said unto them, Nay, but to see the nakedness of the land ye are come. He just repeats his own line. He's not listening to the pushback. And they said, Thy servants are twelve brethren, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is not, and you know what that means, dead. And Joseph said unto them, That is it that I spake unto you, saying, Ye are spies. Hereby ye shall be proved by the life of Pharaoh, which would have been a very serious statement for him to make, by the way. Ye shall not go forth hence, except your youngest brother come hither. Send one of you, and let him fetch your brother, and ye shall be kept in prison, that your words may be proved, whether there be any truth in you. That's also a very serious statement for him to have made. It's serious from our perspective, knowing this is Joseph, but it's very serious for them too, knowing that this is a leader of Egypt that has the power of life and death in the palm of his hands at this point. And then he says, or else by the life of Pharaoh, again, surely ye are spies. And he put them all together into ward, and this word is also translated prison, three days. Pleading their cause and their minds to a stranger, they attempted to prove their worth by coming forth with more information about their family and status. The very first verse here, verse 10, they confess their sons of one man. And then when he he shuts that down, they plead with him. We're son of a man back in Canaan. No leader would have sent ten sons of his own family as spies. That's important for us to know. That's why they're saying it. And that's the, the expectation is that he would receive this as, okay, that makes sense. No man would give up his entire lineage, or to use the language we've been using in our, our, the Lord's ministry study, their entire kingdom by sending all of their sons into a foreign land to be spies. Because if they were found out, it's over. They're all extinguished. This would have stirred up some emotion for Joseph. Again, we know it's Joseph. He's hearing his father mentioned for the first time in 20 years. He knows the brother that's back home. 
And this is the first he's heard him referenced by anybody but likely himself in 20 years. And even though God had blessed and caused for him to forget some of that hurt, again, Manasseh means causing to forget. Ephraim means uh, a blessing of fruitfulness. These were still his own people. And no doubt he thought of his younger brother Benjamin very often. That's his link to his mama. That is the one who has a connection that only he has on the face of the earth. Keeping in mind that his brethren had seemingly always enjoyed arguing, as I said, it, it, you can read this as them kind of talking over one another, trying to plead their case and to make it very clear that they're not spies. That they're not there for any other reason except to survive. You see the irony here? These were the ten that were in control of his life in the pit. These were the ten that had the ability, the power, the say-so to pull him out and return him or restore him to his life. And we didn't celebrate it much, but remember one of the brethren stepped in and, and did keep him from dying. But they sold him off and lied about him dying. Anything he knew, uh, anything of his life in Canaan was gone. 20 years ago, Joseph was a guy here that died. That's all anybody knew. The Shechemites, if they were planning revenge on those 10, well, they'd say, well, there's no Joseph to worry about because he's been gone for 20 years. Without wavering, Joseph then repeats his claim that they are spies. By the name of Pharaoh, by the life of Pharaoh, y'all are spies. He puts them in ward or a prison three days. As a leader, Joseph expresses that, uh, that talking will not suffice as their explanations or their defense for why they're there. He, and he's speaking for Egypt, Egypt required proof. By the life of Pharaoh, we will have proof or your spies. Notice he does not pronounce death upon them. Notice he does not uh, describe really what the punishment would be at all, except that this would reveal them to be spies. This is something that Joseph knows a little bit about, because we already know he spent time in the prison where spies were sent, or those suspected of being spies. We don't know that this is the same prison, but it might be. It might be Potiphar's prison. And what was it that Potiphar was in charge of? So a consequence was already in the mind of the brethren for sure. Now, why was Joseph so hard on his brothers? Some of us in the flesh would say, well, they had it coming. Why did he wait so long to reveal himself to them? And we haven't seen it yet. But one of the theories that I have is that he's trying to be sure of their character. And I've read a lot of commentators this week that said he was trying to prove that they were repentant. I really don't think that's our job. And I don't see it here in, in this text or really any other text. There, there's, it's really hard for us to measure fruit, is it not? We, we look for a repentant spirit. We look for a change of heart. But there's only God and the person that knows their salvation. That's it. So after 20 years, Joseph did not know who his brothers were, who they'd become. He longed to see Benjamin, but with what they did to him, maybe Joseph's kind of waiting to see if Benjamin's still alive. Did they do to him the same thing? Did they do to him worse? 
to say that he wanted to make sure they were sorry, which a lot of commentators seem to think, um, it's a bit of a stretch. I think in the flesh we want that, don't we? But remember when he named his sons? I don't think that's Joseph's heart here. Luke uh, chapter 17, verses 3 through 4, Jesus says, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, you bet, you know where I'm going. Jesus says, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Now, if that were to happen to you, the exact way it's described, no doubt in your mind, you're thinking, this guy is not repentant. He continues to hurt me. He continues to spitefully use me. But what does it say at the beginning of verse 3? Take heed to yourself. And that's what Joseph's doing. See, we can look at all of the language in these first uh, sets of verses of this chapter and say, Joseph's just, you know, he's looking for revenge. I don't think so. Joseph's taking heed to himself. Is my brother okay? I want to know that. He may not think he'll ever see him again, but I want to know that before I give you this corn or this bread or, or this, uh, this grain, as it's likely that that's what the text is referring to. But in the mindset that Christ delivers unto the church, unto his disciples there in Luke 17, we are to take heed unto ourselves. In that text, he's putting the onus or responsibility on the forgiver, not the sinner. He says if he repents, forgive him. He says if he repents seven times, forgive him. But he doesn't say hunt him down if he doesn't repent but six times. And that seventh is still hanging in the balance. Hold back forgiveness. Take heed to yourselves. This doesn't mean that a sinner should not repent. Repentance is very important to each sinner. Being able and willing to forgive is also very important. That's what Christ did. That's who Christ was. Now, I don't wish to elevate Joseph's character beyond reason here. But with where we are in the text, it does beg the question, would Joseph have let his brethren die if they could not produce Benjamin? I don't like to go into hyperbole too far, but it's something to think about. Would he have let them die? The evidence of the text says that, uh, that he had just intended to prove that they were spies. It doesn't say that he was sentencing them to death. Would Joseph have let his brethren die if they couldn't produce Benjamin? Would he have put them to death if they, they were proven as spies? I think he may have let the system take care of some things for sure. But based again on how he named his children in the previous chapter, we see his heart. See, the way they named their children was the declaration of who they were. And for a believer, every time so far in Genesis we've seen a name granted, Think, think back, let's, let's turn there. We're in Genesis. Turn to Genesis 4, where you'll find an ultrasound of Zebi. Genesis 4, verse 1. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Look up what Cain means tonight. I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she justly names him that. You know what Adam means? Man. Names mean something. 
So if we continue that pattern throughout Genesis, and we do, go look up Esau, go look up Isaac, go look up Jacob, go look up Abraham, then we can assume that it was Joseph's heart to name these boys the way that he did. So again, as hard as it is to see if a man is repentant, we're looking at the fruit of a dead man here, the way he named his children, and we can see his heart. His position would have required some mathematical understanding of their situation. See, if, if there was only 10 in this family, if they didn't know this was Joseph, and let's say it wasn't Joseph, just for a moment, he would not grant them grain for a household with 12 boys, one's gone, and one can't be proven. He likely would have granted them grain, if he granted them grain at all, for 10 boys and their father and their households. So, even if we break this down to his exact job, he has to do what he's doing. They have to prove who they are. They have to prove their need. It's impossible to say exactly what he would have done had Benjamin never been produced, but it is likely he would have at, very, at the very least taken it into consideration, as I said, with how, many, uh, how much grain he had granted unto them. He never formally issues a threat of death, but it's certain those ten considered the possibility of it as they spent three days in ward, or prison. Seventy-two hours. Anybody remember how long the chief baker and the chief butler also had to deal with this? I like to think it's the same prison, personally. A prison of nightmares, as it, as it may be. They're wondering, what will this man do? He is the only one that we could come to. He is the only one that has life and death in the palm of his hands. He's the only one for which we can find hope. There is a clear comparison, beloved. The Lord Jesus is your only hope. He's my only hope. He's the only hope for humanity at all. He is fully in control. I urge you, if he has called you or worked on you to do something, be obedient unto him, whatever it might be. Well, as we tend to do on Wednesday nights, we'll